Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I don't know if it was exactly what everybody wanted to play, but the fact of the matter was it was a hit record. So there's very varied taste in that band, which was probably to me its strength, but it's what pulled it apart in the end. Oh yeah, sure. I've done it a few times with Joe. Did it a couple of times with John Belushi doing Joe. <laughs> was that more fun? Uh, with Belushi? Yeah. Of course. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode 42 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now, today's guest is another rock and roll Hall of Famer, the 10th we've had on the show already, Dave Mason from Traffic. Now he lives in Hawaii and I live in the Highlands of Scotland. So with the time differences to get this interview sorted, I had to get up early. It was the evening for Dave, it was 6am for me, but well worth the early rise to get sorted and get the studio turned on and everything else. Now, I was really excited to hear from Dave because his CV is incredible. Genuinely, he's played with some of the biggest classic rock stars and on some of the best classic rock songs of all time. Now, much like recent guest Bev Bevan from ELO, he was on episode 40, Dave's from the Midlands area of the UK too. He met the bandmates he'd later enter the rock hall with, Jim Capaldi, Chris Wood and a certain Steve Winwood, at the melting pot that we discussed with Bev and very early on in the series as well with Bob Catley from Magnum, which was Birmingham, home to some of the most incredible bands of all time. Now, although his tenure with the band Traffic was fairly brief, he left a legacy and it certainly wasn't to be the end of the story for him. Now, as you're going to hear in the interview, he later went on to play and record with The Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Eric Clapton, and had a top 100 hit in the US with Michael Jackson. And, uh, yeah, another and, and as good friends with Jimi Hendrix, he actually played on the recording of All Along the Watchtower, my favourite cover version of all time. 
You'll hear some of them stories coming up soon as well. Now, although he's English, he's lived in Hawaii since the 70s. And over there, he scored some big solo hits too. Now, his solo work saw him achieve a platinum and four gold albums in America as part of seven releases that all made the top 50 on the Billboard chart. So there you go. Like I said, one hell of a CV, one hell of a life. So here you go. Enjoy my chat this week with Traffic's Dave Mason. I'm delighted to speak with a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, inducted by the band he helped form when he was just a teenager. He's had a successful solo career with gold and platinum albums and has worked with the cream of the crop in classic rock from the Rolling Stones to Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Eric Clapton and Jimi Hendrix. I'm excited to hear his stories now. All the way from Hawaii, it's my pleasure to speak with Traffic founding member Dave Mason. Hi, Dave. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you very much. Thank you for joining me from the other side of the world. How is lovely Hawaii? Hawaii. Ah, uh, beautiful. <laughs> Very nice. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, we're going to chat about your career. It's an incredible career, 50 years spanning and such. Um, we'll start back at the beginning, though. Um, traffic, I mean, you were just a teenager when the band got together and you were writing big hits, Hole in My Shoe and Feeling All Right and that sort of stuff. I mean, that's, that's pretty incredible, really, isn't it, for anybody? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I just was, you know, uh, the right place, the right time, whatever. I mean, it was just fortuitous that uh, Jim and I got met up with Winwood, and um, that band just happened just out of basically just, you know, guys just hanging out, listening to music a lot um, when we could, and it just developed into traffic. So how did all that happen then? How did you guys meet? Because the, the end of the 60s in the UK was, was, was rocking time, wasn't it? You think of the bands that were coming through at the time and the music that was being played. So how did you all get together? Um... We just uh, we met in a place called the Elbow Room in Birmingham, basically an after hours club. A lot of bands would go there. Uh, um, the Moody Blues early on, when Denny Lane was their singer, mm-hmm. uh, were playing there. Uh, played there one night, um, and there was always some great music. But that's how we met. Just developed from there, and like I said, just four guys hanging out. <laughs> for young guys hanging out indeed and then like we said i think one of the first songs that you wrote was hole in my shoe which was a big hit over here in the uk it got to number two didn't it yes yes it did it got to number two angle but humper didn't kept me from number one <laughs> and uh yeah it was somewhere it was the first song i'd ever written it was what was i 19 18 19 years old very um naive in a way it was song of the times and a lot I was playing sitar. That influence was coming into music a lot. So I, I just, I don't know if it was exactly what everybody wanted to play, but the fact of the matter was it was a hit record. So Absolutely. It drew everybody's attention to what Traffic was doing otherwise. I mean, there's was, was very varied tastes in that band, which was probably to me its strength, but it's what, uh, pulled it apart in the end. Yeah, and you mentioned there, I mean, pulling it apart. You left, didn't you, after the, the first album first came out, Mr. Fantasy, which was a big hit again. I mean, top 20 in the UK, the album itself, it was a hit yeah, in America I, as well. Yeah, I left. I left my, my, I left because I was just so young, too young. So young, and the success was, um, just for me, it was, um, I'm, I'm from Worcester. Yep. I'm just, you know, running around in farmland. <laughs> so it was all a little bit too much for me at the time at that age um and yeah i left 
And when you left, you, you did other bits and bobs, didn't you? I mean, you worked with the family on their first album, didn't you? I, I mean, did, I worked. So how, how did you... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, so how, how did that help with you? Because obviously you're still very young at that point, but you're working with another band on their debut album. Did that kind of help with everything? Yeah, you know, I was, you know, just, learned, you know, there was, when you're that age, you know, there isn't anything you can't do, or at least you'll try. So learning the studio was part of everything for me. And um, my name, John Gilbert, who was, we were friends with through Chris Blackwell at Island, was managing this band called Family which I, was very much a very alternate band. And yeah, I, st- I, 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 I was there for most of the production and then Jimmy Miller took over at the very end. But it was an interesting band. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And your connection with them went a bit further, didn't it? But going back to Traffic, you did rejoin, didn't you, in time for the, the second album and you contributed a whole host of songs. And again, the big song, Feeling All Right, was on there. And that's the one that kind of everyone remembers. It was a big hit and, and Joe Cocker's obviously since taken it on and things like that. But can you remember much about the, the, the sessions or the writing of Feeling All Right? Uh, well, I had written that song during the period of time that I was not... Um, with traffic, I actually wrote it in a uh, wrote it on an island called Hydra in Greece. It's just a uh, you know, it's a unrequited love song, basically. <laughs> and what did you make of Joe Cocker? I mean, did you get a chance to perform with Joe Cocker when he did it? Oh yeah, sure. I've done it a few times with Joe. Yeah, did it a couple of times with John Belushi doing Joe. <laughs> Was that more fun? Uh, with Belushi, yeah. of course. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. And then obviously that second Traffic album was another big hit as well, top 10 in the UK, that one. And and, and after that, you kind of, you left the band and you did a lot of different work, didn't you? you? You met a lot of friends in the in the music business and we're talking huge high profile people. And we'll just touch on a couple of these big stories you've, you've spoken about in the past as well. I mean, we'll start with, with Jimi Hendrix. I mean, probably one of the greatest cover songs of all time, cover versions all along the Watchtower. And, and you performed on that song with him, didn't you? Uh, I played acoustic guitar on that and uh, sang on Crosstown Traffic. I did some other tracks with him playing sitar and bass, but I have—I really have no idea what happened to him. <laughs> uh, so, um, but yeah, I spent some good time with him. I mean, he was amazing. So how did all that come about with All Along the Watchtower then? Uh, we just heard the new uh, Bob Dylan album, um, uh, that was that was out. Somebody had a copy um, one afternoon, and I guess uh, something struck Jimmy about it. And a few days, I think it was just maybe a few days later, we were. Um, I found myself in the studio with him, him and Mitch, just the three of us. And that's cut that track. The first time you heard the song, and you were as you were recording it, did you feel the the the, the quality of the song and how good it was going to be and, and what a hit it was going to be. Well, who knows how big a hit something's going to be, but yes, obviously it was um, uh, it was something unique and special. So something was going to happen with it. And Hendrix was just such you know there was there wasn't anybody like him. Still hasn't been. Picking up on, on on other people you've worked with, I mean, it's an incredible glittering career in terms of people you've worked with yourself. I mean, Paul McCartney, I mean, you worked with George Harrison. What's it like working with these guys? Because these are genuine superstars, aren't they? Um, well, I got to know Paul through a girl that I was with at the time who was designing some furniture for him. So that's how I basically met him and then through him met George. Um, 
And um, that's basically how that sort of came about. And it wasn't unusual for people to be at other people's studio, you know, drop by a studio at the time in London. I mean, everybody was there. Everybody's using the same studios. There weren't that many. Uh, and everybody was in London anyway, being pretty much the music capital of England. So it was, it was, it was very easy to to, uh, to to bump into somebody, say hi. Just you know, everybody was somewhat of a fan of each other's music. So I mean, looking back, it's it, it's they were great things at the time. It's what I was doing. So um, you know, <laughs> it was sort of parcel and part of parcel of my world at the time. You know, being young, I just like I said, it was just. Um, just exploring all kinds of things. I pretty, I mean, I have very eclectic music taste. And um, you, you just, you we've spoken about people you've worked with. We've spoken about traffic and yourself. You, you've had a, a hugely successful solo career, which has gone on for a long time as well. But I've heard you in interviews say that you felt more of a, a a man not that that fronts things, but a man that kind of plays alongside other people. So, how did you find having the solo career then? In the beginning, um, <laughs> it was. It's not really, you know, like I said, I, I prefer to be, I mean, I have things that I, that I, but I'd rather make it within a band, you know, I mean, I just, my whole thing, my the way I looked at traffic was there's a lot, there's a lot of divergent taste, but there was a lot of very similar tastes in music, but everybody had their own little thing. Um, and I always assumed to be somewhat like a, uh, you know, a unit that would come together and, make records traffic but but there'd be room for each other you know everybody to go up and do their own thing if they wanted to so i always looked at it that way but i like the um yeah i like the i like the band thing i mean I, that's what i do i'm on the road i've been on the road for over 50 years <laughs> so i'm a working musician yeah. absolutely and then in in terms of like your solo stuff you moved to america didn't you when when you were pretty young your solo hits i mean you had big albums like i said gold albums you had platinum albums over in america some huge hits over in america as well but it didn't really translate to, to the uk was that never really a thought to come back and try and, and do that here because obviously you had hits with traffic over here but it was the solo stuff nothing not... ever happened for me in the uk okay it's i i wish it did um and it would be great to come back and play there. But it never, it, nothing ever took off over there for me. Strange. Yeah. Uh, there were some Scandinavian countries, but never in England. Shame. Yeah, was that a conscious decision? I spoke to <laughs> Roger Earl from, I spoke to Roger Earl from um, Foghat, and he was saying that the, the success in America almost kind of stopped them coming back to the UK because they were having so much success there. Why do they need to come back to the UK? Was that something you were thinking, or is it just what happened? No, I nobody never made any rec there's no I never had any hits there. There was no record sold. I mean there's a few fans over there, but it wasn't enough to warrant coming over in in tourists. It the you know, the cost of doing it would have been prohibitive because there would just be small audiences. So it's never there's never it's never been big enough record sales there to warrant, you know, um coming over there. I'd love to otherwise. And uh, just touching on something else, you did in the mid '90s, Fleetwood Mac, another big name, were just dropping in, and you, you became part of that band again. Um, it's nice to have been mentioned with Fleetwood Mac, um, but again, it's something that you said looking back now it was it was a strange experience, a, a weird time almost. Uh, I was kind of a little, well, it, but the thing was with the album um, um, Stevie and um, 
was not with it at the time and they weren't doing it. And Mick wanted to do something. Um, and rang me up and said, hey, I'm, you know, thinking of putting something back together. And uh, I was like, okay, sure. I'm, let's give it a shot. Um, and it was basically myself, Billy Burnett, uh, Becca Bramlett, of course, who I were from, who was Delaney and Bonnie's daughter, who had a huge hit over here with Only You Know and I Know, my song, who I played with for a long time. Um, she was in the band, and Christine McVie recorded the album, but she wouldn't go on the road. <laughs> so it was, um, yeah, it was, it, 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 it was a sort of Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> <laughs> sort of Fleetwood Mac. And speaking of Fleetwood Mac and Mick Fleetwood, a good friend of yours, um, something you did during lockdown, I think it was last um, it was last year at some point, wasn't it? You, you did a re-recorded version of your song, Feeling All Right, but you brought together some friends of yours, didn't you? And some very high-caliber friends. Do you want to tell us about that? Um, I got Sammy Hagar, Michael McDonald, uh, all three of the Doobie Brothers, uh, Mick, uh, did a re, um, re-thing of, of Feeling All Right, which... which Everybody, if you go, uh, <laughs> the, the website's davemasonmusic.com. And there's a, there's a cool, some cool stuff up there. There's, those videos are available through there to see. Um, there's some very cool interviews I've got in there with, with Mick and a few other artists. So, but yeah, that, that video's up there um, and it's worth watching. It came out great. Considering we were all in different places. <laughs> How did you find uh, filming that and recording that song then? Because it must have been a different way for, for working with, with getting things sent to you on the internet and mixing and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I, um, yes and no. I mean, I'm, you know, I have a little studio at home. So I'm used to having people do parts send back on a track. <clears throat> um, obviously a little bit more laborious doing it that way, but um but the fact of the matter is it came out, it actually, it, it actually came out sounding like we were actually cutting that tune together. It didn't, it, it doesn't even appear like we were all in different places. So um, <laughs> it was interesting. It was fun. Very cool. And how did you go about selecting the, the members for that song then? I mean, because obviously you've worked with so many people and you've got such a, a, a strong connection to the music industry and must know hundreds, if not thousands of musicians. So, so what made you select those guys in particular? Most of them. Most of them are all from being, um, I mean, the Doobie Brothers, I've been done shows with them back in the 70s. I mean, we've done shows on and off for a long time. So, and really got to know them about, I think it was about four years ago. Was it four, five, Journey? Uh, there was a tour with Journey, myself and the Doobie Brothers here in the US. And um, so we really got close on that. Sammy Hagar and Michael, uh, I know them from here in Maui. Um, Michael has a place here. Uh, Sammy was over here a couple of years ago visiting a mutual friend. Um, and Mick, I just know Mick's lived here for 20 years. And Mick and I have known each other for a long time. We're, we're good friends. So basically it was just like call everybody up, say, hey, I was thinking of this. Do you want to Sure, man. I know that song. I've done that song <laughs> So Everybody knows that song. Yeah, everybody. Um, and that's basically it. And then John McPhee, actually, from the Doobie Brothers, uh, who is a huge talent, major talent, quiet one of the group, really talented guy, was very instrumental in 
um, gathering the audio together. Uh, in it. So yeah, it, it came out really good. Good stuff. And just touching on something that we, we mentioned at the start there in the intro, that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I mean, it must have been almost bittersweet for you in a way, because it's fantastic to be recognised and to be to be lauded in such a way, but still with what happened with the group and, and Steve Winwood in particular, it must have been nice in one way, but almost a what could have been in another way for you. Well, I, I, it was, uh, I mean, it would have been a great opportunity to do a re, you know, to go out and tour, especially here in the US, and I'm sure probably in the UK too, but I mean, if I had a dollar for everybody to ask me about that <laughs> over the years, um, but Steve just don't, he just doesn't want to do it. How did you find the whole um, Rock Hall experience then, the, the induction itself, the night and all that sort of stuff? Well, it was, an, it was you know, it's a great gathering of everybody. The great thing about it was it's probably one, in my mind, probably one of the better evenings. I mean, there was some, it was traffic, Prince. Jackson Brown, uh, ZZ Top, and um, um, like a rock, um, Bob Seger. Yeah, so it was it was quite an evening. Prince was awesome. I mean, I've never seen him live. He, I have to say, he was the guy was he was pretty amazing. <laughs> Wonderful talent, wasn't he? Absolutely wonderful talent. And just one last thing then. Um, I've heard that you're working on an autobiography, a book. Um, yeah. How are you finding this? Is uh, I've spoke to other people that have written books or are writing books, and they, they kind of say it's, it's a mixture of emotions. It's elation. It's it's upset. It's heartbreak. It's happiness. I mean, how do you find it? Um, well, I don't know if I'd find... It's so much that I'm 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 a more pragmatic guy, um, so I did. the process. I wish I had a better memory. I wish I had kept a diary. <laughs> um, but it's, I have a co-writer with me um, who's done uh, a number of co-written books with. Uh, in fact, he did one with the uh, with the Doobie Brothers, Chris Epting, um, and he's he's great, great for research. You'll find, hey, remember this part? It's like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, I get it. Otherwise, it's, there's a lot of things that just <laughs> go by the way. And what stage are you at with that? I mean, is there a, a, a date we're looking for for publishing or anything with that one? I don't really know at this point because I'm right in the middle of a trying to close a publishing deal. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. Uh, if it does... Um, it would probably be out probably not until next May or so, I would imagine. Dave, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and hearing your stories. Really appreciate it. And look forward to, to hearing to reading your book when it finally comes out. Yeah, well, thank you. It's going to be called Only You Know and I Know, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course, indeed. Lovely. Enjoy the rest of your evening, Dave. Thank you. Thank you. You too. There you go, Dave Mason there. What an incredible career he's had from working with Steve Winwood and Jim Capaldi in Hall of Fame group Traffic, having a successful solo career in the US to playing on arguably the best cover song of all time, Jimi Hendrix's All Along the Watchtower. He's played with members of the Beatles, the Stones, Eric Clapton, Fleetwood Mac and many more as well. Phenomenal stuff, it really is. 
Now it's the time of the show for my top fives. It's where I give you my favourite five songs from the artist or band of the artist that I've just interviewed on the show. Now, this is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be a definitive list. It's very subjective and hopefully can open the doors for anyone who may not be overly familiar with the group in question. So here we go. My favourite five songs from Traffic, according to Vintage Rock Pod. Number five is Equal Parts Blues Riff and Psychedelic Blowout. It's a tune telling the tale of a wine-guzzling beauty with gypsy in her blood. From the second album Traffic from 1968, number five is Pearly Queen. At four is a real funky track, which eventually appeared on the hastily put-together Last Exit album after the band broke up for the first time. It has a rolling groove to it that just carries you along. Follow me, it's good for you, that good old-fashioned medicated goo. And number four is medicated goo. Number three is the band's masterpiece. Now, I'm going to be shot down for not picking it as number one, but this is a personal choice after all. Built around a simple piano riff, this 11-minute spectacular is rock, prog, jazz, improv piece all rolled into one. From the album of the same name from 1971, number three on the list is The Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. Number two for me is a song that stays in your head all day when you hear it. Jazz infused with piano groove and saxophone included too. From their eponymous second studio album, number two is Feeling Alright. And at number one is from their debut album from 1967. It starts off as a beautiful 60s jam, and by halfway we've got the ear-melting solo. So, so good. It's a top tune, later covered by the likes of Hendrix, Grateful Dead, and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. My favourite track of theirs, the number one traffic song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Dear Mr Fantasy. There you go, my favourite five songs from Traffic. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. Would be lovely to hear from you. Now, I want to give a shout-out to one of my uh, Vintage Rock Pod VRP VIPs who is in touch during the week, Andy Old. Uh, he's got an incredible story to tell, so I'm going to read it out for you. hope you enjoy this as much as, uh, as I enjoyed reading this. And he says, this is the honest truth. Now, he says that after a Whitesnake gig at Southampton Gormont in the early 80s, his mate Mark Gates and himself, plus a couple of girls he'd hooked up with, wanted to try and meet the band. Unfortunately, they all jumped straight on their tour bus and headed for their 
hotel. Now, undeterred, he said, we dashed back to the car and managed to catch up and follow the bus back to the said hotel. They were then lucky enough to wangle their way into the hotel and spent a couple of hours hanging out with the whole band. Now, he said this was the classic early lineup: David Coverdale, plus John Lord, Ian Pace, Mickey Moody, Bernie Marsden and Neil Murray. He says Cozy Powell was also there. Just just Cozy Powell. He said, We literally sat around drinking and chatting, which was like a dream come true. We got autographs, of course. But here's the best bit of all. One of the girls, I think her name was Pauline, but we never stayed in touch, had on a jacket with pin badges all over the lapels. One of the badges had the slogan, Would I lie to you just to get in your pants? Now, according to my listener Andy, he then goes on to say, David noticed this and remarked that it would be a great idea for a song. We never thought any more about this until later on when Come and Get It, the album, came out containing side two, track two, Would I Lie to You? He said, well, you could have knocked us down with a feather. We were there for a small part of White Snake history. Incredible stuff, Andy. Love hearing stories like that. Please get in touch if you've got something similar you'd love to share with myself and with everyone that's listening. Now, we've literally got listeners all over the world. I think we've reached 92 different countries around the world now, which is pretty phenomenal. Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you and I would love to hear your stories too. Now, if you would like to become a VRP VIP like Andy is, it's basically where you sign up to receive a newsletter that lands in your inbox at the very most once a week. And it's full of information about the episodes before they're released, chances to win things. There's extra little stories from around the world of Vintage Rock Pod 2. Plus, this last week, uh, VRP VIPs also got the chance to submit their own question to one of my future guests, which is coming up as well. Now, you can submit these uh, questions in writing writing or you can record a little voice memo or you can record yourself a video and I will play it to the artist themselves. Pretty incredible. Now, if you want to be involved, just go to my website, vintagerockpod.com, and you can sign up using the form on the first page there. I promise your information will not be sold or passed on to anyone else. I'm not going to spam you. You are completely safe. And please check out Vintage Rock Pod on the social media channels as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is where I share short videos, clips, pictures, all that sort of stuff. And also on YouTube as well, where I post some of the video interviews online too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all those platforms and you'll be able to find me. Give me a like, follow, subscribe, say hello. It would be great to hear from you. Also look out for the Pantheon Podcast Network. Now, Vintage Rock Pod is now proudly part of the network of music podcasts, which has just released a series narrated by the one and only Roger Daltrey of The Who. It's called The Real Me Podcast and is part of the Who Cares Teen Cancer America program. Definitely check that one out and look through all the other fantastic series that are available on the network too. Just look for Pantheon Podcasts Network. Enjoy then. Well, that's it for this week's show then. More big name guests to follow with rock and roll stories. Episodes are going to be released every Monday. And if this is your first listen, make sure to follow or subscribe so you don't miss any of the episodes as they land. So until the next one, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of classic rock, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.